Hey, Prime members, you can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. Uh, Hi, everybody. We got a great one today, you know, for a change. Well, we'll see. We'll see. No, I, I swear it's going to be a great one. Oh, is someone else coming in? Yeah. <laughs> Jimmy Kimmel's with me. I'm going to be doing uh, your show tomorrow night. Thank you for, one, doing this and then having me on uh, Jimmy Kimmel Live. Thanks for doing it. I feel like I maybe pushed my way onto your podcast. I don't get enough time on the show to talk and you don't. interested to talk to you. Yeah. Yeah, I wanted to talk to you about the show yeah doing the show it was funny when when we just started this a minute ago uh you said i don't feel comfortable doing this without headphones i like headphones cans as we call them in radio cans okay so you did radio and of course you want to hear how you sound on the mic it's half the fun is luxuriating in, in your beautiful voice <laughs> listening to yourself most that's why most disc jockeys uh, they they wind up speaking like something other than a human being because they're listening too closely to their own voice. Well, it's uh, yeah, it's great to be able to <laughs> know how to use a mic, isn't it? It really is. And uh, we're talking here with, with Jimmy Kimmel. <laughs> yeah, you sound like you were playing an album track on KLOS at yes. like 11 o'clock at night. But how long did you do radio? I, I did it professionally for 12 years. I did it for free for a few years leading up to that. What was it? I did it in college. Okay. I did it in, uh, I'd just call in to a disc jockey when I was in high school. There was a guy on the air in the afternoons, and I'd call in and do characters on his show. So you love radio. I love it, yeah. Love radio. And uh, how long, when you did your 12 years, what was the format of your show? Were you like a three-hour show? Or you, what would you do? Always a morning show, four and a half or five hours, <laughs> starting at 5.30 a.m., <laughs> So you got used to the long format. Yeah. But you had commercials. Commercials, songs. Um, oh, okay. Yeah, it wasn't talk radio, but, you know, we'd play four or five songs an hour. So we talked a little bit. Never enough. We always wanted to talk more. Okay, what was your taste in music? What did you play? It wasn't about that. I got no, I had, <laughs> you know, in my era of radio, the disc jockeys were not allowed to pick the songs. Oh, so. really? Okay. The most you'd get to pick is every once in a while, there'd be like a one song per hour that you could pick from a certain category. And we'd always pick the song that had the longest intro. So the intro is when the music plays before the singing starts. and You just want the most time that you can talk. So if there was like a 35-second intro, that's the song you'd go for. You mean you'd talk over the intro? you talk over the intro, yeah. <laughs> Because you were just hungry to be on, to be talking? Yeah, if just you wanted to do a bit or something like that, you just needed time. It's it's harder to do things, I think, um, in a short time period than it is a lot. For me, anyway, it is. That's why I was saying it's oh, on yeah, my well, show. You know, it's, well, you have it, to con- condense it down to like eight minutes. 
kind of it's the old thing like if you want me to talk for two hours i can do it right now but if you want me to come up with something brilliant that's three minutes long you have to give me a week yeah it's you know a whole I mean? different thing yeah yeah and so are you are you frustrated on your show ever that you don't get enough time sometimes sometimes it's too long it depends on who's there <laughs> there are times where i'll look over at the clock and i'll go oh really four more minutes okay <laughs> okay well that means you have to interview a variety of different kinds of uh folks mainly celebrities primarily celebrities yes mm-hmm. what is the uh formula for a good guest and the formula for a bad guest. If you really want to boil it down, a good guest will expand with their answers, and mm-hmm. a bad guest will give you one-word answers. It's like the difference between a deposition and a conversation. <laughs> Some of the worst guests would give great depositions. <laughs> yes, they would uh, follow their lawyer's instructions. Yes, just, uh, precisely, say. yes. And I, I, since you were in radio, I knew that the audio on this one was going to be good. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think it's the best you've ever had. Even better than John Mayer. <laughs> That's saying a lot. <laughs> okay, so you do the show. It's called Jimmy Kimmel Live. Yes. And you tape it live. <laughs> it was live at one time. The first two years we were live. Oh, oh, I see. And then we had some issues with the standards and practices, the censors being able to keep up with some of the guests who would curse or whatever, and some of the affiliates They didn't do, like, upset. a seven-second delay or something? They did, but that works if you curse once. If you continue cursing in rapid fire, it, they can't catch up to it. So, And who is the there guiltiest was, party? There was an actor named Thomas Jane who was the Punisher, and he came on the show and he just started cursing and which was okay by me. I didn't it didn't bother me, but it got on the air and even though it's late at night, the affiliates are weird about that stuff. Okay, so you do it five days a week. When does it become a burden or a grind and when is it thank God I'm doing this? I'll let you know when we get to thank God I'm doing this. I'll call you. <laughs> Uh, it's just it's more about it's nothing to do with the show it's just my personality I don't want to do anything that I have to do and some nights it's harder to do than others and of course the president makes it even more of a burden and more grueling sometimes is that because you feel the necessity to yeah I just feel like a news person or something for the first time even though I know that uh, that's not what I am it's hard not to talk about this guy but it's also hard to talk about this guy in a way that's different from the way other people were doing it, yeah right? it is yeah so it's a kind of a conundrum which is i mean i've had so many people go like you know what you should do mm-hmm, yeah. you should do a thing on trump i get a lot of that yeah and uh, you know <laughs> less now than i got i'd say a year ago but yeah. it's you get a lot of it and some people are just sick of hearing it about it and him, and they just don't want to hear about it. And they're just like, hey, why do you, what happened to the fun? <laughs> what happened to the show? And for me, I always, my philosophy, if, if for lack of a better term, was to talk about the news of the day. That's always what I did when I was on the radio. And of course, you weave personal stuff in, but it was to talk about the news of the day. And this is what everyone talks about all the time. 
incessantly. I think there's a national anxiety and divisiveness that we haven't seen. It's just gotten worse and worse and worse. And I've been really disappointed watching the impeachment things because basically now uh, the Republicans have, uh, in the Senate, my former colleagues, have basically enough of them said, okay, well, he, he did it. But it's not enough to impeach. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what is then? <laughs> what could be I mean, enough? It is actually shaking down a foreign leader with our tax dollars. And their country is at war with Russia. Their lives are at risk. They have no choice but to play along with him. Right. And it was all about interfering with our election. If that's not impeachable, what, what, what standard are we setting? I just, I am so curious as to... Are, but are we're you, having a conversation that, uh, that, that, that you're hearing all the time. And I try to get away from basically the news of the day on this, because you just hear it all the time. So I, I want to talk about you and politics. You pretty much, I think, studiously avoided taking political stances well, I was focused on the silly stuff, you know. Right. George Bush can't get through the door or, you know, his, <laughs> or his, you know, just the silly stuff. Nothing particularly serious. I think you do a late night show and you wanted to have as big an audience as possible. And that's not what you were. You weren't a political satirist. And then what happened with Billy, what happened with your son, mm-hmm. happened. Right. And I think that had a very big effect on the debate at the time, and a very helpful one. You've probably been told this maybe a lot, but what happened, you were so raw, you had, you know, it had something happen to you, which was terrifying. You're staring at the possibility that you're, Newborn wouldn't make it. Right. But you had the sort of human capacity to understand that, well, at least I have the resources. I I don't have to live with, in addition to being scared to death about the outcome, but at least I know I can pay for it. And at the time, the Republicans in, in Congress and the president were working on legislation that would have made it possible for insurance companies to impose lifetime caps and to shrink Medicaid, take away Medicaid expansion. You put yourself in the shoes of someone who didn't have the resources and knew that in addition to looking at the possibility that your son wouldn't make it, in addition to that, you thought, these people won't know if they can actually pay for it. You know what really hit me more than anything is uh, I, I was at Children's Hospital in Los Angeles, and there were many families, many low-income families there, and you see each other, and you see everybody in, in the elevator and in the cafeteria. And what really was interesting to me was like watching these moms and dads come in from work. They mm-hmm. were coming to the hospital from work. And there I was sitting in the hospital all day because my employer was 
good enough to say you can stay home. But a lot of these people, if they're not at work, they don't get paid. And if they don't get paid, they can't take care of their whole family. And it just hit me like, wow, this is such a burden on, on these people. And on top of that, could you imagine if this hospital wasn't here to pay their medical bills, to take care of? I mean, how do you do anything? I mean, even just from a practical standpoint, how does a family contribute to society if they're struggling to keep their child alive? That's obviously the most important thing to all of us as human beings. And then it just so happened that this was an issue, which is, it still is crazy to me that it even was an issue, that there would even be anyone who would be against that. I don't think most Americans are. I, mean, I know just from talking to people, Republicans and Democrats alike, that you know, if your neighbor's child or your neighbor is ill, you want to help that person. You want to pitch in and help. And it just seems so crazy. And I do try to, when something bad happens to me, and this usually is, it's usually something dumb, like I get a flat tire, and I go, all right, well, at least I have a funny story. At least I have something I can talk about on the air. And that's a great position to be in because you can make something good out of something bad. And I was sitting in the hospital for a long time, and I was thinking, well, what can I do? Yeah, and you do? came back, and you were hilarious. But I just really, <laughs> my goal was to raise money for the mm. hospital, but then all this other stuff, started happening and it became bigger than that. And, um, and I never imagined that it would be such a big thing. And so many people would see it and respond to it. But I think, you know, I don't know if I believe that there's a reason for everything. I, I I've never believed that in, in my life. I probably still don't, but if ever there was in, in my personal life, if ever there was a, uh, proof of that the, this situation would be it for me it, it was the your rawness um and the humanity that affected people obviously um but it was right in the middle it was what may of i think 17? so the beginning of may probably I came back to work okay that was a crucial time because they were talking about repealing and replacing Obamacare, and the, what they were coming up with would have allowed states to write regulations where insurance companies would not have to respect people's pre-existing, pre-existing conditions. conditions. Yeah. Which, if a kid like Billy, the, well, he'll have a pre-existing condition. Yeah. His entire life. And he's probably hit his lifetime cap already, if that was a thing. And probably already hit it. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, absolutely. And now the president is talking about repealing. He's instructed his Justice Department to join the suit. They have joined the suit that would repeal the Affordable Care Act. Yeah. And the president does not know anything about health care. Remember when it went down, he said, who knew healthcare was complicated? <laughs> he thinks he can just call his doctor and say, give me a great report, and his, and his health is perfect. He's the healthiest man who's ever run for president. <laughs> but what they were doing at that time, it, it would, would have been lifetime caps, would have gone, 
protection for having a pre-existing condition would have gone. But it wasn't like Billy should be blamed for his pre-existing. You know, it wasn't like he was smoking in the womb. Yeah, right. It's not like he, he didn't get, um, get driving insurance because he had 12 tickets. It, it's, or, you know, or, he wasn't eating a lot of saturated fat <laughs> in the well, womb. I lost your wife. No, no, yeah. what her? No, she's pretty was. healthy. Yeah, if if I'd carried him, yes, it would definitely it would have been <laughs> our fault. It, it's unfathomable to me where they're going and where they're still going. And this is what kind of bothers me. I think you know Democrats in thus far have been having a real debate on how to get the universal, which we need to do. And I think that's a very good discussion. But the focus we really should be putting on is what happens if we elect this guy and what happens with health care. Right. What you want is for everybody to be covered. What's crazy to me is that they don't think about the, what I think is the reality. What if, they are, what if they were successful in killing the Affordable Care Act? And then people started getting, you know, people get sick as they do and they didn't have insurance coverage. And you know, you have one coworker who has a situation like that with their child or even them themselves. And people say, yeah, now I can't get insurance. And then everybody goes, wait a minute, Trump came in and we used to have insurance. And now this person, it would, it would be a political disaster. Well, it was a political disaster in 18. He lost 41 seats in the House. And what I worry about is in this discussion of how to get the universal that we're having on the Democratic side, that we're we're talking about things like single payer with yeah, no which, private insurance, mm -hmm. which no other country has. No, every other developed country has private insurance. That's an unelectable position, I think. Well, I, I kind of think so too. Yeah. And uh, fine, let's have that discussion about single payer versus not single payer. But this idea—I mean, 150 million Americans have private insurance. And a lot of them really like their private insurance. I, I wrote the piece of the Affordable Care Act that put the biggest cap on the amount of profits the insurance companies could do. It's called the medical loss ratio. And uh, Americans get, like this year, uh, or last year got $1.5 billion back from insurance companies because they didn't meet the threshold that I said you can... You have to spend 80% of your premiums on actual health care <laughs> and not on administrative costs or marketing. Mm -hmm. There's only two countries in the world that allow pharmaceutical companies to ad both advertise and deduct the cost of the advertising. So the taxpayer pays for their advertising. Which is the other? New Zealand. Really? Huh. And I have no idea why. <laughs> Probably left over from old Zealand. <laughs> That's the kind of political satire. That's what you can expect from me. That's where I really shine. <laughs> okay, uh, we, we have to we have to break for a commercial, and uh, here it is. The best way to learn a language: immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way, and that's with Babbel. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts 
to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's convenient courses have helped me learn real-life conversation in German. For example, let's say you wanted to order soup with your dinner. Die Suppe würde mir auch gefallen. That means the soup. <laughs> that, means, that means I would also like the soup. And that way, I get soup with dinner. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash franken. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com slash franken, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash franken. Rules and restrictions may apply. It's harder to focus than ever these days. Thankfully, C4 has reinvented the energy drink game with C4 Smart Energy, the only energy drink clinically proven to provide enhanced mental focus, containing 200 milligram of natural caffeine, a blend of vitamins and zero sugar. It was formulated to support your well-being and help you feel your best, all while enhancing mental focus. From your brain to your body, C4 Smart Energy does it all and tastes amazing. Look for Smart Energy in the beverage aisle at your local Kroger, Albertsons, and Safeway grocery stores. C4 Smart Energy. Stay focused. Let me, let me talk about just the landscape of late night TV. Because there was a time when it was Carson. You mean Johnny? <laughs> yes. Okay. <laughs> it was kind of just him. Uh-huh. Yeah. I mean, you had Cabot come on, or you had, remember Joey Bishop did a show? Joey Bishop, yeah. Uh, yeah, Regis was his announcer on that show. That's right. Um, Joan Rivers. Yeah. Did she? Alan Thick, the thick of the night. Wow. Rick Dees had a show for a little while. These are all just proof that it was Carson. Yeah. Right? It puts less pressure on you, doesn't it? The landscape of oh. late night TV. You mean having more guys on the air? Yes, sure. Yeah, because you don't have to. It used to be like a. It was like boxing. Like the only one could survive. Yeah. Johnny or whoever. Of course, it was Johnny and Dave, but Dave was under Johnny's umbrella. Right. When Letterman came. Like when I was a kid, people think because I had a, a license plate that said late night on it, and people think, oh, you mu- you always wanted to be a talk show host. But that is not true at all. I just love David Letterman. Sure. I wanted to put him on the back of my car. And I never imagined that there would be other shows. Really, that concept for me became a real thing when Letterman went against Leto. So that was, you know, something that I never even thought about. And even then, it just seemed like, all right, well, there's Letterman and Leno. Yeah. But, I mean, this, I would think, makes the job... A little, just less pressure. Yeah, there's there's not, I don't experience a ton of pressure. At the beginning, I experienced a tremendous amount of pressure. Huge amounts of pressure. What, uh, when you went first went on, how long ago? I went on 17 years ago. Wow. Yeah, 2003. Okay, so what, what was the terrain then? It was um, Letterman and Leno, um, Conan, and uh, Craig Kilborn. Oh, that's right, yeah. And then Nightline was on at 11.30 on ABC, and they put me on after Nightline for an hour. So I was on in the middle of 
of those shows. And how long did did uh, Nightline last in that spot? I think it was on seven years before they flipped. Then now Nightline is on after our show, so they flipped us. It's so weird because Nightline, pre-cable, 24-hour cable, yeah. was kind of an indispensable show to watch. Even when I started, you know, there when in wartime we got preempted a lot with Nightline. It was, but I think, yeah, having being able to turn on a cable channel at at any time. Yeah, by, by the time Nightline would come on after twenty four hour cable, it had been rehashed and rehashed and rehashed. But before all of that, Nightline was the first time you got to really hear a good summary of what had happened. Right, and Ted Koppel being there too, yeah, added a lot. Yeah, he was, he was the guy. Yeah, yeah. So now you just go in and try to be as funny as you can. Yeah, I had no idea what I was doing. I had um, no one on on my staff, with the exception of one or two people, had ever done anything in late night before. It was a mess. None of the celebrities knew who I was. Those who did did not want to be around me. There were many nights, many, many nights that it was 5 p.m. and we had no guest for the show that night. Jesus. And we just, I just, you know, I was dating Sarah Silverman at the time. and Sarah would come on I'd if say, you had no one. You gotta, I need you to come on. And she would, or Adam Carolla, or just, I just have to rely on my friends. Isn't Sarah amazing? Yes. She really is. She's brave. Isn't she? It's like the... She is more than anything. She is the most um, supportive and um, genuine. Like she, uh, most comedians aren't so happy for each other. She is like genuinely, no kidding around, happy for the success of others. Yeah, she's a wonderful, wonderful, a friend and a, and a courageous and and really funny. Yes, which makes a difference when you're a comedian. Yes, yeah, it's, it's it's the ideal scenario. <laughs> so yeah, so she would just come on. <laughs> yeah, she'd come on. I'd be like, all right, well here we go. Okay, here I go. And and you know the comedians like to really get their shit together for a an appearance. Yeah, yeah, not on my show. Nobody yeah. worried about it. It was very very loose. I, at first like year, I didn't. I I had nothing prepared for the monologue. I would just go out there. My first show was after the Super Bowl. I had no jokes written. <laughs> I had 12 writers and no jokes. Now, how did that happen? How did you staff up with such a thin staff? I, well, I, we didn't think of it as, as thin at the time. You know, it seemed like a lot of writers. Well, I mean, thin in terms of the, the talent. It wasn't, <laughs> or, you know, it wasn't or the that. experience. It was by design. It was like... I don't know. I just figured, well, maybe I'll just do this like Regis does. I don't. It didn't occur to me to, to have a real monologue. I would go out there. I'd sit down. I wanted to make the show different. And mm-hmm. that was my first big mistake is I was so focused on making the show different. I didn't focus on making it good. And we really wanted to do things differently from the ways other people were doing them. And what you learn, well, at least what I learned, is that there's an expectation. And it's a weird thing. But when you do a late night show, America expects you to walk out on stage and stand there and tell some jokes and then go sit down and maybe tell some more jokes and then welcome some guests. And you can mess with it to a certain extent, 
But if you mess with it too much, they don't see it as a late night talk show. It's something else. And when it's something else, then you've, you've lost. And so that's the lesson I had to learn over a uh, long and painful period of time. Well, it's amazing, actually, that you got to do it that it is no. <laughs> it really is that abc gave you that was it they gave you that freedom or that they just you know i think so many of the executives at abc got fired those the first five years it was like a, a revolving door and i don't think i was ever at the top of anyone's list of things to fix you know those executives are judged by prime time sure and the effort that it would take to like figure something else out probably was too much for them and the truth is we always did pretty well in the ratings and even though the show was like genuinely terrible i mean i look like that is my vision of hell is looking back at being forced to watch the first year of shows one after the other it, we did okay in the ratings, so... Well, you, know, uh, you must have been doing something right. I don't know what we're doing right. It did, if you go back, you can't really find anything. <laughs> it was really tough going. Well, I think people don't realize how long it takes TV shows to find... It yeah. takes a long time. The Simpsons, the first year, Homer sounded like Walter Matthau. Yeah, right. Yeah, <laughs> You know, I mean... Uh, people don't realize how long it takes the show to really, you know, find something like unnecessary censorship. Yeah, censorship. things like that where you have uh, regular bits. Those are your, those are like if you go out for a long swim, those are the buoys that you can cling on to. You go, OK, at least I know on Wednesday I have this. And then uh, maybe another couple of months go by and you're like, OK, now I know I have something on Monday and something on Wednesday <laughs> and it just like keeps you alive. It really having those, those go-to comedy bits that you know will work at least. Okay. It gives you some confidence. It gives you a base to stand on. And if, when you don't have those things, you are just paddling for your life. Mm -hmm. Now the challenge is you don't want to feel too comfortable. Now the challenge is okay. Yeah. These things work, but we can't just keep doing those same things. We have to mix it up. And then you get new writers, um, who, you know, writers are always kind of coming and going and, and they want to do the show that they've seen. But, you know, the reality is you want people coming in with, with new ideas, not versions of your old ideas. Well, when you, okay, let's, so how do you choose a writer? Do you read, do you read it or does your producer read their work, or um, their submission? We, the head writers will read the stuff and they whittle it down. And then I will, yes, I will always read their submissions. And um, I just, so what are you looking for? I mean, you know, at SNL, when we get new, you know, thinking of new writers, the thing I wanted was an original voice. Yes. I like, I like to hear, you know, it's funny because sometimes I have to remind like we have a writer who's a single woman and she's dating or whatever. And it, for whatever reason, she doesn't think to include those experiences in her packet because it's, you know, it's not something that, that You're I would say. But, and a man. But I love hearing that perspective because it gives me, I can speak about that stuff, uh, not from my own point of view, but I can still make something out of it. 
And so I like to get different perspectives. But what I look for in a packet more than anything is would I put this on the air? Would I put this joke on the air? And I put a little star next to it if it's something I would put on the air. And if there are enough of them, I just kind of add them up at the end. And I go, who has the most? And somebody has a <laughs> so lot of them. I, I, I just, I remember, you know, at times when I was producing on the show, and at a certain point we stopped reading submissions unless they were submitted by an agent. Uh, we did that pretty early. But still, what you look for is an original voice. Now, it's different in sketch. I think a little bit different yes. than what you're doing because there's more variety there yeah i'm the same character every night that people are writing for and a joke is a joke yeah i mean a great joke is a great joke and you don't necessarily need a new perspective right. on a joke <laughs> but you want to you know at snl you had a jack handy yeah who had like an amazing voice that's great yeah, yeah strange yeah i'd have to read like submissions of somebody's nephew right right and then i'd talk to them and they'd go like well it has a premise and it, it fulfills the premise and i'm going like oh boy <laughs> <laughs> there are a lot of writers that are just smart people who mm -hmm. decided they want to be a comedy writer and they figured they figured out how to be funny enough that they can kind of fake this, it this is a big problem in comedy writing yeah because you know i'm 68 years old and when i started no one thought you know what to be a great living comedy writing right <laughs> <laughs> you know no one like uh, was going like yeah that looks like a uh a really viable you yeah. know uh that's that's a little like being uh you know a a, a torts lawyer. I mean, it's yeah. just... If you were lucky, Joey Adams would pay you 25 bucks or something <laughs> for a joke, right? And then now it's become like, oh, you know, comedy writer. It's a job now, yeah. yeah. It's something that sounds good on Tinder. And, and, I, and I can figure that out. Yeah. And no, no, you got to really kind of... People that are, that are just funny is, you know, some of the guys that are that work on my show and women that work on my show are just funny people. They're, they're not particularly well-educated. Some of them, they are just, but they are the funniest person in almost every room they're in. You can't be funny. You just can. And it's just like, you know, sometimes I think we always had an underdog mentality at our show. Like, well, these Harvard guys, they think they're so smart, you know, but we'll see who's funnier. If only there was a funny contest of some kind. And they go, oh, yes, there is the show. It's called the show. <laughs> there oh, is a funny contest. Well, why aren't we winning that? <laughs> Maybe we should have gone to college. I would have, sometimes I would, you know, somebody's nephew or somebody, a lot of people would just come up to me and say, how do you be a comedy writer? And I, I want to be a comedy writer. And I said, I would always say, are you writing comedy? And very often they'd say, no. <laughs> <laughs> and then I'd say, fuck you. <laughs> and then if they, they laughed, there's some kind of hope. I remember mm -hmm. I had one young man who I said, are you writing comedy? He said, well, no, I don't have time because I'm, <laughs> I'm on the varsity basketball team at Columbia. 
And I went, okay, let me ask you something. If someone said, I want to be a pro basketball player, and I said to you, Tim, do you play basketball? No. <laughs> I'm writing jokes all day. I'm writing jokes all day. I go, Does, are, am I, are you tracking me? <laughs> it is funny how little respect people. Well, people don't have a tremendous amount of respect for funny people in general. I mean, I'm sure you experienced that. And you probably, I know you went to great lengths to position yourself as something other than a funny guy than a comedian when you're running for office, right? I mean, that, that Oh, yeah, we... Yeah, uh, you kept the jokes pretty pretty tight to your vest for a long time. Oh, yeah, I just had to just not be funny. And, you know, every teacher in school, if you're the funny guy in, the cl- in class, you're, you're subject to a certain amount of abuse and derision. Did you get kicked out of the class yes. and have to stand in the hall? Yes, many yeah. times, many times. <laughs> me too. <laughs> I actually... One of my teachers told me she was going to get me expelled from college. And I said, well, you can't do that. You can't kick somebody out of college. She said, yeah, we can. I said, what do you mean? (laughs) It it became more of an interesting point to me than anything I said. So you you could actually, you could tell them. She said, yes, yeah, absolutely. You're, you're, you know, people are here to learn. And when she said that to me, and I swear to God, I'm not exaggerating in any way. It was, it was a total revelation. It never occurred to me that people were there to learn. I just, I thought, oh, we're all here because our parents will be mad if we're not. And we have to get through this together just like we did the sixth grade. It sounds like you weren't a particularly serious student. I was not, no. I was not. Now, Dana Carvey once said to me, no one uh, should be a comedian unless they have to be a comedian. <laughs> And I think that's actually true. I think so too. Yeah, I think that's correct. You know, <laughs> every every uh, comedian, every comedy writer I know that's really good. It's just they had to do that. I was fired from many of my radio jobs, almost all of them, and it, <laughs> and it sounds funny, but it was definitely not funny at the time. You know, I have two older kids, and uh, you know, I had my daughter when I was twenty four. And I'd get fired from these jobs 10 months in, 11 months in. Once I lasted 18 months, and that was like a Now, where, where were, you, were you going from city to city? Or? I was going from city to city. I went from Vegas to Phoenix to Seattle, back to Phoenix, to Tampa, to Palm Springs, to Tucson, to L.A. That was my radio journey. And, and this is when you had kids? I had kids for three quarters of the time. And wow. it was not fun. And at a certain point, you know, my ex-wife was like, hey, what's, uh, what's the plan B? And I said, There's, there is no plan B. There is only, there is just this plan. Plan B is, I guess, divorce. Yeah, that was plan B. That turned out to be plan B. <laughs> what's plan B? Um, well, in about 13 years, we're going to get divorced. <laughs> the minute we can afford separate residences. <laughs> That's plan B. Yeah, it was plan B, yeah. But but um it but yeah, I I you know, I honestly I think sometimes I think what would I do if if I if I wasn't you know, doing radio or television or whatever and the only thing I could really come up with was I could probably install AV systems. <laughs> that would be something that, 
that I'd be pretty good at. <laughs> I bet you could sell thermal pumps. I don't think I could sell anything. I'm not. Like when I was in Little League and you had to sell the box of chocolates, I'd go to my grandma's house, I'd go to my aunt, and that was it. And, and the chocolates would sit there. <laughs> my parents would get mad. Grandma, you don't really have to buy these. Grandma, <laughs> grandma you're 200 pounds overweight. Just buy this whole box of chocolate. Oh, yeah, isn't it? Uh, but it's nice that this job exists. Oh, thank God. It's just, thank God they pay you for this. It is still, I sometimes still will just like look at my house and go, geez, I can't believe they gave me this for telling jokes. It's crazy. But you paid your dues. I, yeah, I did. But I mean, you know, we know that it's preposterous. I mean, it's not at all fair what we make compared to what other people make for their jobs. I mean, what do you mean? We, uh, (laughs) (laughs) you know what I mean? No, I mean, it's, it's, it's work and it can be a grind and all those things and it's competitive and everything. But, um, yeah, but it, 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 it definitely is. It pays better than, than it should. We're going to take a break for a moment. We'll be right back. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. So I have a story about you met my son. Uh, we were at uh, All the Way, which was the show about LBJ that Brian Cranston right. was in. Yes, that's where we uh, where you met my son, and you were with uh, uh, Howard Stern. Yes, you were sitting with him, and right in front of us. So we said hi, and then we went backstage to Brian Cranston won a Tony for that. So we went back to. Tell him how great he was. And, uh, of course, after doing a show like that, you usually shower, and the, the, he he would. And so we had some time to kill, right? While we were backstage, and so when my son heard that you were doing this and you were that I was doing your show, he said, "You know, that night, Jimmy like asked me what I did, and and then he was interested in it." And, Dad, you know, I've met a lot of celebrities, 
And not many really have ever asked me what I did hmm. or seemed interested in it. And he just wanted to say, you know, he's, he's a good guy. Isn't that sad, though, that that... <laughs> <laughs> it you is know, and it isn't. I, I have mean, a weird thing. I am super interested in, in people and their jobs and the specifics of their jobs. And I get to... I get to talk about that every night during the commercial breaks because I'll speak to the audience and I always want to know what they do and where they're from. And I'm curious, like where the name of their town came from and they never know and <laughs> the quirks of their jobs. And it's funny because I get in these conversations with people sometimes when I'm out and about and I'll get into an intense conversation with someone about their job. And frequently people will say to me, why are you asking me about this? You don't care about my job. And I'll just, I'll go like, wow, why would you, th why would you think that? Because just because you think just because my job, I deal with famous people that I don't that, that, that eliminate that whitewashes what you do. I mean, it's not, I mean, I'm curious about how, how customers react to, um, you know, waiters and how, you know, working in a factory that makes plastic tabs, how that goes and thermal pumps. I keep coming back to thermal All pumps. All that stuff is interesting. <laughs> it is interesting to me. Well, that probably is what makes you a good interviewer. I guess you have to have an element of curiosity. Not really, but I think you, you can do fake it. I think you do. No, you, you're you're right. I think you have to have it because if you if you're faking it, it's just you know you could tell people are faking it. There has to be something real there. The problem is sometimes the jobs that you're interviewing people about are are exactly the same. You know, it's like, oh, so you're an actor. You know, that might be exciting at a cocktail party, but when you've interviewed 40 actors in a row, it's not as interesting. Tell me about a, a bad interview with an actor. Mm. <laughs> Have you had any? <laughs> I've had probably less than most people mm -hmm. would think because most people, most actors who are on the show, they want to do well. You know, they... That's why they're there. They want to be liked. They want you to go see their project. Occasionally, sometimes guys are just like totally out of it. And you go, how is How does this person act? Like, how does this person get a script? Even like, how do they get the door open to bring it into their house? They're so, this person is so crazy. I mean, I've had actors get up and wander around the studio during the commercial break. <laughs> it's like, is happening. Well, they're an artist. Maybe they're an artist. I mean, you get guys that are genuinely crazy people who continue to work, and, and you just say, wow, I just don't believe this person is that talented that anyone should have to deal with this. And eventually those people do disappear. I've had some, especially in the early days, I used to have a co-host every night, and those co-hosts varied wildly. Monica Lewinsky was my co-host one week. Whoa, 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 whoa. Mike Tyson was my co-host one week. Whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> <laughs> great thing. Monica Lewinsky, who was very nice. Didn't that, she seems like a very nice person. She was a very nice person, but she did not want to. We learned that she did not want to talk about President Clinton at all after she had arrived for the first show. So well, of course not. That left, hand, <laughs> that left me with handbags <laughs> to talk about. Oh, yeah. And... Um, and that was, and it was a long time ago, you know, and, um, so no, so the person who booked her 
yeah, didn't really, you know, they're like, oh, this would be great for Monica. And then they show up and she's like, and you know, I mean, I respect that. Of course, you know, I, I'm not going to force that on her. if She doesn't want to talk about it. But also I thought she knew that that was part of why we were interested in, in having her as a co-host on the show. Um, See, that's why you have, you know, a producer. Oh, the show was a mess at that time. Who <laughs> knows to say, uh, Monica, <laughs> uh, can you guess why we're having you? <laughs> And that was weird. And I had a few, you know, sometimes I would have trouble even getting the attention of my guests. Like the, <laughs> like the co-host would be more interesting to them and I wouldn't be able to get a question in. And that is, humi- that is genuinely humiliating. Where a conversation just starts without you and you're the host of the show and you're not in it. And it's, it's just like, I remember not. So where was your co-host? Where in the set? Colos would sit on the couch, so Colos mm-hmm. would sit next to me at the beginning and then move down I the see. couch as the guest, and we would build these couches. You know, I always I thought, oh, wouldn't it be great if we bring all these weird different people together? And so it was like Anna Nicole Smith and Evander Holyfield sitting next to each other, each one of them going like, who is this person? <laughs> and uh, and then a wrestler, and you know, just like just crazy combinations of people. <laughs> And then every once in a while we'd get a real celebrity on the show and like, it was like, we didn't know what to do, you know? And then, but then they would be bookended by weird and D list celebrities or reality show Joe millionaire or something like that. Let me ask you about the Oscars. Yes. It's kind of like the pinnacle of hosting something, isn't it? I think it was. It was. (laughs) Yeah. It wasn't the Golden Globes. (laughs) Um, I guess. Uh, I think it's still the Oscars. They just haven't had a host for the last couple of years. I think they'll eventually go back to having a host. But that was a big deal for me. Yeah, it represented, well, a couple of things. I mean, first of all, to be asked to host the Oscars. You've you know, arrived. Pretty good sign that things are going well. But <laughs> Also, they were, they were on my network, and I was really not considered <laughs> to host them until like the last few years. So even just not having the confidence of your own network <laughs> is not a great sign. So how do you approach that? Um, it's all about the jokes, I think, mm-hmm. you know. Um, well, that would seem to be, that seemed to be your approach to the whole thing, which is I'm going to go out there and tell jokes. The, the thing that I wanted to make sure of when I hosted the Oscars was that it wasn't 100% scripted and we left some room for something unscripted to happen. And so we had a few situations like that throughout each of the shows. One of them, I tricked a tour bus. They thought they were coming in to look at the, um, the, the museum <laughs> and they wound up inside the theater you know, with, during the, the Oscar broadcast. <laughs> and the other one was, <laughs> that's a great idea. How did that, it was fun. It was, it was, yeah, it was, it was the looks, I mean, it was, it was great. And then the other one was, um, well, once, uh, well, one of the Oscars, I, uh, gave away a jet ski to whoever gave the shortest speech mm-hmm. and it was fun. The, you know, the actors playing along, like going on and on and going, I'm sorry. I, I know I'm not going to get the jet ski, you know, and bringing up the joke as, as it went. But the other one was we had people in a movie theater watching a movie and we interrupted the movie 
on screen. And then we walked across the way to the movie theater. I brought like 20, you know, Academy Award nominees into this movie theater where an audience was watching the film. Seems like a lot of work. It is a lot of work. <laughs> a lot of effort to do it. But if ever you're going to do a lot of work, that's the time. Yeah. Because the rest of your life, you will have to look at lists of who was the best Oscar host and who was the worst. And you just want to be I mean, it, it seems seven. like, uh, okay, it's a commitment. This better work. Oh, yeah. 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 That's what I'm saying. But that's part of the fun, you know. Maybe it won't. And a certain perverse part of me enjoys bombing. I, there's something about it that and I And that's love. a good, th- that's, thank God. Yeah. <laughs> thank God. I've made a career of it. <laughs> because early on, you had to get some pleasure out of the thing. I do have the ability to look at myself, to kind of step outside of my body and laugh at myself. Like, I think, ah, look at this. That is, uh, that is something that I think a lot of comedians, uh, it's probably a survival skill, but yeah, it's, it's also, I, I've so, sometimes the funniest, the thing you remember most is the time <laughs> you died. Uh, yeah. Right. At the beginning of my career, when I was doing stuff with Tom Davis, we did a, just an event with old Jews <laughs> and man, oh man, it was, <laughs> At one point, I just had to stop and tell some Myron Cohen jokes, <laughs> and that worked. <laughs> but I, Tom, didn't know Myron Cohen jokes. I did. Well, Tom was lucky you were there. Yeah. So, who who were your influences? Um, Letterman and Howard Stern are my mm-hmm. probably my two biggest influences, but. I mean, you were one of them. By the way, we there was a time in our lives, a crossover time, where we could have been twins. <laughs> I wore round glasses. <laughs> we had the same hair. I mean, really, people used to call me Al Franken all the time. Really? Yes. Yeah. Um, and uh, uh, Steve Martin, Bill Murray, um, you know, all the, yeah. the guys, Richard Pryor, uh, the people you, you might imagine. Yeah. Well, you're a lot like Pryor. But I didn't, <laughs> I didn't look at it. Um, in a way, like like these are the guys I want to be like. I just these are the guys I thought were funny I, that I loved. Right. One of one of the thrills of my life was Richard Pryor. Um, towards the end of his life, when he was he was very sick, loved this show that I produced called Crank Anchors on Comedy Central. And his wife called us and asked us to send him all the episodes that hadn't aired uh, because he wanted to see them, and he was like not not well and they didn't think he was going to make it and i was like wow richard pryor is calling and asking for a show that that i made that's a that's as as great a compliment as as i unless it was a prank a, a cranking prank being played on us when i was running for the senate and i met harry reed who was majority leader at the time uh-huh. he just said to me now what do you do for a living <laughs> and i don't think he knew that comedy was written isn't that crazy? <laughs> well, you know. <laughs> He's, by the way, he represents Las Vegas. <laughs> think. Uh, yes, he does. <laughs> He's a great guy, I got to say. I got to say, Harry is uh, uh, a treasure. 
Mike Bloomberg, when I did the White House Correspondence Center, when I hosted it, I met Mike Bloomberg. This is years ago afterwards. And he's like, he goes, oh, that was, uh, that was funny. What do you do? I said, <laughs> I said well, I, I host a, uh, a late night talk show. And, you know, where, does, where is that? Where would I see that? I was like, well, it's on ABC. I'd been on for quite some time at this. I was like, wow, I'm kind of impressed this, this guy doesn't have any idea of who I am or what I do. Well, he was busy. I know. I, I guess so. But, you know, most people aren't quite that busy. I mean, most people, like, you know, maybe they get in the cab and they'll see me in the back. I guess he's not getting in the cabs, but. Uh, yeah, I think it, as mayor, probably he's getting around not. a different way. Yeah. Well, thank you. And, and again, health care is an enormous issue in this, and I really do wish that our candidates would uh, focus on on what would happen. Maybe if, they will. Know. Maybe they will. Maybe once they're through um, strangling each other, they will focus on that. Well, obviously part of the process is explaining who you are and why you're differentiating yourself from the others, but man, it's about differentiating yourself from this, this pathological you lying. Mean, you mean Trump? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks. Well, I, I hope you enjoyed uh, listening. That beautiful music is by Leo Kotke, the great Leo Kotke. I want to thank Peter Ogburn for producing this podcast. We'll talk again next week. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Once upon a beat, remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me, DJ Fuel, and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the new kids and family podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Yeah. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat. The early 2000s was a wild time for reality TV. There seemed to be an endless supply of shows that delivered entertainment for us, but trauma for children. I'm Misha Brown, the host of Wondery's podcast, The Big Flop. Each week on The Big Flop, comedians join me to chronicle the biggest pop culture fails of all time and try to answer the age-old question, who thought this was a good idea? We recently looked behind the scenes of what was really going on at Abby Lee Miller's dance studio. Abby's biggest misstep wasn't screaming nonsensical catchphrases or throwing chairs on television, but instead, she was choreographing financial fraud in plain sight. 
Join me to break down all the wild details of Abby Lee Miller's story. Follow The Big Flop on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Big Flop early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.